Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is part two of our conversation with Mark Krozik. If you haven't listened to part one, hop over to the episode before this and take a listen. For the rest of you, let's continue forward with this interview. So it it definitely uh, leaves a lot to be desired in that sense. What I've really struggled with personally in my experiences when it comes to tree hay is around managing for tree hay and coppicing at the same time. Because in a lot of ways, they they don't always really overlap in terms of the, the tree management to keep the tree healthy. Sure. Um, so I don't know if you think you could talk a little bit about that or... Yeah, I, I think um, what I'm I, what I think you're referring to is the fact that like generally with coppicing, um, best practice would would be that you you do all your cutting during the dormant months. Exactly, which means that you know the energy of the plant is largely uh, in the root system. Um, you're you're exposing the cut surfaces. Or you're not exposing cut surfaces to um, you know. Uh, fungus and, and insect damage or infestation potentially. You give the, the regrowth the entire season to, to, um, to get established because you've cut it in the wintertime. You're, not doing, you're doing minimal damage to the soils through compaction because in a lot of cases the ground's frozen. So those are some of the reasons why coppicing happens during dormancy. But if you're cutting for tree hay, obviously you want the leaves. And so you need to cut during the growing season. And there's also, there's, there's a lot of layers of complexity that build on that because during that first flush of growth in the springtime is when we often see like kind of the most potent, um, the, the nutritional value being most potent, the digestibility of that, those leaves being, you know, at their peak, but we have the least volume of material. So as the season goes on, you're going to have that much more, you know, leaf matter that you're going to be able to harvest but we tend to see the digestibility and the palatability of the leaves start to diminish. And so you know, often the kind of optimized timing is going to be, you know, July or August, um, you know, kind of late July, early August, where we see those kind of two diverging uh, axes on a, on a graph um, converge where we have kind of the, the best palatability, digestibility, but also like the highest volume of fodder that we can uh, harvest that obviously (laughs) there's only a a narrow window though for that you know to to do that the harvest at that point in the season and also those those optimal times are going to vary a bit depending on species one of the things is that it it comes back to recovery time and to kind of again connect it back to the rotational grazing it's kind of the same idea but on a larger time scale and so that's why generally we're talking like a minimum of a three-year rotation if you are harvesting tree hay because you want to give that pollard or if it's a coppice stool that stool an opportunity um to kind of you know restore its energy reserves and 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 reestablish before it's harvested again more often we'll see even like five to seven years is like a typical rotation. So that's one of the ways that we kind of, um, we kind of counteract the, the, uh, the complexity of, of harvest during the growing season is that we just give it a longer recovery time between harvests. I'm trying to think if there's another direction to take that, but I think that, uh, well, is... one of the other challenges, like you're talking about, like letting animals go right to the coppice itself is, um, that, that impacts how you can rotationally graze because suddenly if you need to let those trees rest for 
an extended period of time, that grass might be ready to be grazed that's next to the that wall of coppice, but then you have to fence it off and protect it from the animals and so on for an extended period of time. Yeah, I mean, this all it all depends on the species that you're working with, like the 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 livestock that you have. Um, you know, we have uh, installed a bunch of different silvopasture type systems on our landscape. Um, although in a lot of cases, we're our silvopasture is less about adding browse to the landscape for livestock and more about growing fruit and nuts um, for human consumption. And so basically I am always fencing the animals out from my tree and, and shrub rows because the goal really is to provide herbaceous vegetation management and add fertility to the landscape and just have, you know, more interaction and diversity in the landscape. And it's less about kind of adding additional fodder to the landscape. If anything, we might have, you know, biomass crops or nitrogen fixing species that are within those rows or adjacent to them that then we can kind of lop and just toss in uh, as we're working through, um, you know, between paddocks. But you, the fencing is really the key to being able to manipulate when and how they have access. Um, One thing that's really interesting that I'd I'd heard peripherally about, I haven't studied uh, a lot of tropical systems, but um, as you get down into, um, you know, Mexico and Central America, there's a tradition of what are called fodder banks. And the idea that you have essentially like super dense plantations of woody species that would be browsed in many cases, like several times every year. Um, mulberry, white mulberry being one of the top species for that. Um, and so essentially you can almost think of the mulberry becoming you know, it's almost like a, a grass or a, a, an herbaceous legume in the landscape. Um, and because of the climate and just, you know, the vigor of growth, they're able to hit that, you know, three, four times um, in a growing season. And it's just in the temperate world, it's everything's so much slower that yeah. you know, we really don't have that luxury. Um, I feel like one of the big take homes for me with this is to always start with what's already on your landscape first. And especially with the things that you care about least, because you really can't, the worst thing you do is you kill something that you didn't really value in the first place. And the best thing is that you learn new lessons and that you generate, you know, yields that you hadn't seen otherwise. And so that's why where I was talking about things like, you know, common buckthorn or the Japanese honeysuckle, it's like, it's a no brainer. I can let them browse on it several times. And the worst case is that I learn how many times it takes before they can't, you know, regrow in a season. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it's, it's a real complex dance. Uh, again, not unlike just managed grazing, uh, just in general is that, yeah. you know, we're dealing with complex variables in, in a landscape that can't easily be, you know, distilled or simplified. Um, and, you know, it's all about that kind of informed management and participation. Yeah, I've heard of, oh, you called it uh, tree banks. I've heard it as um, tree blocks, but I think it's the same thing. It sounds like it is, or fodder blocks where fodder, like, yeah. they like grow up almost like this thicket of a block of leaves. And they're like mm-hmm. maybe a couple feet apart at most. And they'll just come through and intensively graze it, which is a really cool idea. But to circle back to what you were talking about with this idea of thinking about our landscape and what's already there, I do feel like that is something that gets a little bit lost sometimes in some of the regenerative permaculture circles where you might have really great species that you you don't want but are already there like uh 
oaks are a really good example. A lot of people don't have a lot of value in them other than as a, a tree that you can get really good wood out of. And like the, the, the oaks are, you know, such an important species for local ecology, even if, like I said, yeah, you can eat acorns, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of processing and most people do it maybe once. And then they're like, ah, that was a lot of work and tasted all right. And then they might do it again, or they might do it as something that's a novelty, but it's never a meaningful uh, caloric part of their diet. Um, and of course there are people that do. Um, but in terms of, I think a large portion of folks that are interested in trying to grow their own food, they're like, oh, you can eat acorns and they try it once. And they're like, yeah, there's gotta be an easier way to get calories. So species like oaks even uh, oftentimes are on the chopping block, so to speak, when people are trying to design their food systems or their food forests or whatever term you want to use and trying to find a better understanding and relationship with the ecology that's already there is super important. And I know your work and uh, Ben Falk and a few other folks like Steve Gabriel are, I think, really good advocates for native species especially things like oaks that we don't traditionally think of and incorporating them into those permaculture systems. And I think that gets lost a lot of times. So I, I, I'm curious about how you, I, you've kind of brought this up a little bit, but how you start to think about when you're putting together food systems or an idea of like a food forest, how those local ecologies and, and even that indigenous history of the land management kind of play into your understanding of building the, the system that you want to implement on a landscape? Yeah, I, I think when it comes to, you know, more of an agroforest, like a, of a human food-based agroforestry system, um, in a lot of cases, you know, you, you almost, it, it becomes this process of, of eliminating the things that aren't desirable first. So there is a lot of removal and, and replacement. Um, and that's where, again, you know, I'm kind of coming at the, the coppicing end of things more from less, less about food and more about craft. You know, in those cases, if I, if I was on a landscape where it was already vegetated with woody crops, you know, I'd want to think really strategically about what I'm removing and what I'm going to replace. And that's where the, one of our design principles is the idea of the burden of the intervener. And it's like, once you, you know, move into a landscape and begin to participate, tr transform that landscape, you kind of own whatever the the results are of your actions and so the first thing i would say for for folks listening is when in doubt don't like if you don't already have a plan don't do anything because you create this window of opportunity as you open up these niches in the landscape and if you aren't ready to respond very quickly especially with woodies because they're going to coppice when you cut them and so um you're going to be battling that pretty hard. And so you want to have a plan before you intervene. So unless I really, that was all I had to work with was an already established old field stand or, you know, a forest stand, you know, I tend to prefer to, to participate more in, in open fields and add trees to fields. And that's kind of, you know, in the book, I basically kind of flesh it out as, as with, when it comes to establishing these systems, you're either, you know, transforming existing woodland or, you know, you're transforming a field into, um, you know, a, a three-dimensional woody agriculture system. In a perfect world, I'm able to build a system around all the species that are already there. And I think that's, that's the Holy grail um, when it comes to how we, we develop a, an elegant, you know, perennial agriculture is that 
we're not really having to plant much of anything. We're just kind of, we're redirecting those energies towards something that becomes valuable to us. And so that either takes us kind of rethinking our goals um, or finding value in things we don't otherwise see. So like, for example, when you brought up oaks, we grow a bunch of shiitake mushrooms here. And so the first thing I'm thinking is, well, what diameter are those oak trees? Because, you know, when they're in that small diameter, three to eight inch range, they're kind of, you know, optimal for growing shiitake mushrooms. That really kind of invites doing some deeper work than in terms like doing a, a, a niche analysis, like looking at each species that's already there and saying, well, what opportunities am I not seeing with what's here already? If you're establishing silvopasture, I feel like that becomes, it becomes a lot easier to participate in the landscape in a way where it's less heavy handed and more about kind of that informed uh, restructuring. Because like within some of our thickets here, I'm just going in every winter and trying to clear out stuff that I don't see particular uses for, but then find some of the the nicer box elders or the nicer elm trees that are already there, which, you know, I'm using air quotes to describe that because most people think a box elder is a trash tree. But for me, as I'm kind of expanding and adding to our pasture, the fact of having like an established tree that's creating shade for the animals just in and of itself is really valuable. But also that box elder is a 10 or 15 year old tree that I didn't have to plant and I didn't have to protect it from getting browsed by animals. And it does produce fodder that's useful. So it becomes this process of removal where you don't have to like establish new stuff. Um, and so as I approach it, you know, from like things from a silvopasture perspective, it's often you're going to remove a lot more than you retain. And so it's a matter of like flagging the things I want and then removing everything else around it. Um, from a food system point of view, in a lot of cases, you know, unless it's biomass or unless it's doing something else that's useful, for a lot of people, you're going to want to remove much of what's already there because the light is going to be your biggest limiting factor and, and the competition from the wild vegetation that's there. It's kind of a long-winded answer, but it's, it's hard to speak hypothetically about landscapes because... You know, they're at different stages of succession. There's different species there. Your goals are going to be different. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, you speak of like species that you think of as non-useful. Actually, Ben Falk gave me a really good idea about like he uses white pines to protect saplings. Uh, and my landscape is littered with lots of small white pines and large white pines. And they're just like, they're as close to a useless tree as I could think of for like humans or even like most native species, like, you know, squirrels or deer or anything like that. And trying to, to do what you're saying, like utilize them in a way that's meaningful. Now I, I was like, Oh, well, a lot of these smaller uh, pines, I'll keep them around and then use them to protect some of the saplings that I am putting in, uh, which is, you know, something I would have never thought of, but makes a lot of sense. And it speaks to what you were talking about, trying to find that utility in a way that um, can be beneficial for the landscape and also aid in that transitional process, which I think also gets sometimes lost because we think, oh, let's just clear cut or clear out everything we don't want. And it's, you know, you have you have to give the landscape time to adjust to what you're trying to bring it to. Mm -hmm. And um, that that's something that you can do to like in my example, we are actually getting multiple benefits. You're still providing some habitat. You're protecting your, your new species. You're allowing for that transition period to actually happen. So there, there's a lot more going on than what might 
appear on the surface by doing that one little thing of keeping some six-foot pine trees around. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. And we've planted several thousand trees on our property over the years. Um, and when I look at how much energy I've put into site prep towards protection from browse and girdling um, to you know, herbaceous vegetation control and stuff, it, it becomes really clear that it's, it takes a lot of work to establish new systems um, in the landscape. And then I walk in our woods and I see all these you know, free established trees that are there that I didn't have to do anything to. And it's like, you know, again, when I just look at, at what a elegant opportunity there is to work with what's already there, what's already doing its thing, it, it always makes me want to kind of restructure my, my vision of what opportunities exist. So where I'm going with this is like, we have a, a 40 acre block of woods on our property and there's probably about eight acres of pretty pretty mature old field that had succeeded to basically um, quaking aspen white pine, both species. And and actually, I I, I don't have I have a, a better relationship with white pine because as a building material, it's pretty nice to work with. Um, it's lightweight but strong enough that you can you know frame up or timber frame with it. Um, it grows pretty quickly, and it's just generally easy to work with hand tools. So. <clears throat> What in, in some of these patches, we had you know, trees that had grown with branches all the way down to the ground because when those trees first started to grow, there was very little competition. And so they just held on to those branches over time, which means that there's just the, the trees are full of knots, that they're going to be very low quality if I were to try to sell them to a sawmill. Uh, we were able to get a grant from the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, to do a patch cut. We cut clear cut one acre of pine with some poplar mixed in there. And we got paid to, to, for that intervention because kind of similar to the idea of, you know, this kind of path scale disturbance with coppicing, it's, it, we're basically creating this like opening in the landscape where there's going to be all this early successional growth. that's going to be really good for all sorts of different mammals, birds, uh, reptiles, amphibians, insects. And so we, we're getting paid to, to do the intervention but we also got about 15,000 board feet of pine logs. So we have uh, stacks of lumber for a barn that we plan to build. We've built all sorts of different outbuildings. We've got tons of slab wood from it. Um, that was just kind of a side benefit of that. And in the meantime, what's happening is, you know, succession in that patch now. And what's coming back up is pine and poplar, both pretty low value species in a lot of ways, but it's free. And there's like, you know, 100,000 new stems coming up in this patch that I don't have to do anything to get established. So, you know, when I first realized that 
the, the quaking aspen is a great species for growing oyster mushrooms, suddenly my relationship with quaking aspen really changed because I realized that once all these suckers sprouts from the, the quaking aspen stumps get to be in that three to eight inch diameter range, I can go in there and do some thinning. And suddenly I've got a huge amount of substrate for growing oyster mushrooms that I didn't have to do anything to get established. All I'm doing is kind of pruning that landscape. And similarly, in another 60 years, if I do some intervention in the meantime, there could be some really nice white pines for someone else to do the very same thing that I did with that are going to be much higher quality than what we went in um, and harvested this last time around. And so this is kind of where I was going with it is, you know, one of the big principles that I've found most relevant to me and in my permaculture practice has been, you know, those attitudinal principles that um, both yields theoretically unlimited and also, you know, just the problem is the solution. And so it's like when God gives me quaking aspen and white pine, I grow oyster mushrooms and think about like, you know, lumber 50 years down the line. Yeah. But that also relates, if that was right outside, right next to my house, it's going to be a very different equation, right? Because that's very low value for me to have like in my permaculture zone one. Um, Whereas like out in the zone five, there's nothing I'm going to do to protect, you know, uh, walnut trees or pecans or whatever I might put out there from the deer and other wildlife. Like it's, it's, it's too removed from the places that I frequent. So again, it kind of depends on the context and the scope and the scale and your needs. Yeah. It's a, it's a nuanced conversation. And I I did a lot of digging trying to find pine or uh, mushrooms that grow on pines because of the same thing. I was like, what am I going to do with all these trees? And there's just, there's not a lot you can do with them. I I believe blue oysters will, uh, Mm. but I haven't spent a lot of time trying. Uh, I don't know if you've had any luck or tried. Uh, I haven't. I I mean, I think conifers generally aren't, there's very few conifers that are well suited to, you know, medicinal or or culinary mushrooms uh, with some exceptions. But that kind of brings us back to that value added continuum again, where it's like, it also, it depends on where, like the, the size of the materials, but the lowest value, but you're going to get tons of wood chips is that you go in and you just, you know, bring in the heavy equipment, the feller buncher and the, the massive wood chipper and, and you get a hundred yards of wood chips. And now you've created this, you know, patch scale disturbance that you can, you know, kind of rearrange the, the chairs or rearrange the space and, and establish the species that you would like to see there. Whereas at the other end of the continuum, if it's like timber sized, for me, it's like going in and, and converting those saw logs into lumber. Well, now I can add even more value to that lumber because now I can build outbuildings for people or I can build other structures on our property. And so, you know, that, that idea that yields theoretically unlimited is just that, you know, the possibilities there, it might not, the market might not be there for it or the need might not be there for it, but it's there already. So how can you use it? Yeah, that, it's a tough one. It, it's, it takes a reconfiguring of you, how your vision might be for what you're doing. And I think for a lot of folks, including myself, that can be really difficult. I, I think this now kind of circles back to this conversation about coppicing and uh, its place within the ecosystem. So we've talked about kind of how humans can manage the ecosystem a bit and coppicing a bit. I'm really interested in how coppicing can be a tool for promoting biodiversity and 
how humans belong or should be in interacting with our our woodlands and our wildlife. Yeah, well, uh, I I have a, a chapter in the book on the ecology of coppice systems, and um, it kind of brings us back to some of those themes we were talking about a little bit earlier about that kind of path scale, you know, mosaic of landscapes at various stages of succession. And there's been this, apparently there's been a co-evolution of wildlife species and landscape over time in Europe, just because of the, the level of intensiveness of management of those landscapes that certain species are really well suited to different stages of ecological succession. And because what coppicing in its, you know, very kind of rigid, you know, rotational patch cut system that was, had become largely the mainstay of much of European forestry, what it offers at the landscapes, you know, from, you know, looking at it from the aerial view is that you have, you know, maybe 10 or 15 different stages of succession, not necessarily stages, but 10 or 15 different years of regrowth all represented within this larger landscape mosaic. There are certain species that aren't going to be benefited by these type of coppice landscapes. Those are species that want kind of, you know, unfettered, contiguous, um, large tracts of closed canopy forest, and which tend to be like, you know, larger mammals, species that, that need, you know, that, that do well in, in, uh, in, a, in a dense understory type environment um, and that, you know, thrive in, in less disturbed ecosystems. Whereas um, there's a lot of endangered insects and butterflies uh, in the UK that they really only see healthy populations in, in uh, routinely managed coppice landscapes because they, they thrive during those first few years of, of regrowth before the landscape has uh, reached canopy closure where the stump sprouts have actually like converged. Um, also from a, an understory vegetation perspective, there's a lot of species that will only flower and, um, and set seed when they're getting full sun. And so by having these very much like shortened cycles of early succession, that's created these like incredible blooms of, of wildflowers that you'll see in the spring. Um, and, and so there's been this kind of, again, kind of co-evolution of, of landscape and wildlife over time as a result of this type of management. I think it's really important to recognize that like the, the folks I've connected with over in Europe tend to have a lot of envy when it comes to the type of forested landscapes that we have here in North America. What we tend to think of as just normal forest, they call high forest. Contrasted with like in Spanish, Monte Bajo is like low forest, which is coppice basically. So there's high forest and low forest. Because of this longstanding tradition of coppice management, it becomes very difficult to create these kind of diverse, uneven aged, you know, complex, multi-storied forested landscapes that we tend to take for granted here. So it's to say that coppicing isn't necessarily better than just more conventional silviculture or forestry. Um, it just, it's different. It's going to provide different products, going to provide different habitat. It's a different scale. And so it, we can look at how it complements what's already here. And again, that's where I like the patch cut I was talking about in that pine and poplar stand in a lot of ways is, you know, the pine's not going to coppice, but the poplar certainly will. Um, and so that does benefit some species because it, like, like we were talking about earlier, um, from an indigenous perspective, it's going to just enhance the habitat for game. But 
there's benefits to having all of these stages of succession present. And so it's going to be beneficial to some species, but not so much for others. So it's about finding a balance. It is, it is. And that's again, where I think context really matters. And so, because what I've, I've dealt with over time is that often when I introduce the idea of coppicing to students, some folks come away thinking the, the conventional forestry practices that are more commonplace here are bad and coppicing is better. Or somehow it's more sustainable or more ecological. And in reality, I think we need to look at it as just another tool in our toolbox that we can learn a lot from just conventional silviculture as one approach we can take to landscape. And it really depends on like, where is your landscape at in succession today? Where do you want to take it? And could coppicing even be a relevant practice? Because depending on what species are there or their relative, like as trees get more mature, we see uh, a decrease in their response and vitality once they're, once they're cut. So their ability to coppice, this is not true across the board, but in a lot of cases beyond like 30 to 40 years, a tree's coppicing response is really going to start to decline, except there's exceptions like chestnut or um, oak species or the, the California redwood is one, you know, extreme exception because 2000 year old tree is going to sprout back with vigor. But so not all landscapes are going to be well suited to transforming to coppice. And I would say if you already have a stand of really healthy, diverse, uh, multi-storied forest, look for ways that you can manage that, that are going to benefit the wildlife that are going to provide some useful yields to you, as opposed to thinking that I should try to coppice this to improve it. Whereas that's where it comes back to that idea of these kind of marginal ecosystems, the kind of disturbed landscapes, the vacant lots and urban locations. It's like those I see as huge opportunities for us to just do better and kind of you know, leverage those resources that are already there. And that's where I think also like our conversation earlier about looking to those landscapes to produce food in some ways, you know, it may be better to look at them as producing wood products because they're not going to produce food without us doing a lot of planting and manipulation and intervention. Whereas if we can just find ways to use those trash trees for something and the, the, the vigorous growth that they create, we don't have to do much of anything except cut them and process them and use them for something. Yeah, the marginal gain with a lot of species, we have to be more thoughtful about. I like to pick on apple trees because we have these like heirloom apple trees that are like 300 years old and um, they make great apples, but they haven't evolved with the ecology that's changed around them because we just, you know, we keep that cultivar going and going and the diseases and stuff can be really difficult. And it's like, all right, yes, this tree produces X amount of pounds of apple every year, but how much input do we have to put into it? because of the fact that it hasn't evolved with the ecosystem around it. And it's all about that cost benefit that I sometimes think we forget about a little bit. And there's a little bit of nostalgia involved in that process sometimes. But the idea of like using pippins and things like that to say these are new you know, varieties that are around now today to deal with today's pests and so on, finding those uh, species or cultivars rather that can fit that environment is very much similar to acknowledging, you know, whether it's invasive species or kind of weedier species, there's a reason why they're there. And their their ability to do a lot without our intervention is something we need to take a closer look at and be more thoughtful about. Uh, and I think that kind of circles back to what you're saying. But to bring all this together, you know, we, we have these challenges of 
trying to utilize the, the knowledge we have in, in terms of coppicing, forest management, uh, food systems, and all of these things. And we also have to kind of wrap that around this conversation of like climate change. And how, how does all this stuff play into climate change? How do we develop systems that are more resilient to climate change? And in your opinion, does coppicing and pollarding have a role to play in that conversation? Yes, although I don't know how. Because I think just adding more diversity to our landscapes and our toolkit is, in my mind, the best and most robust approach that we can take. Um, as best I can tell, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about climate change, honestly, because I just feel like I have very little leverage as an individual to, to transform it. And so what I am trying to do is just create a landscape that I think can continue to yield for generations to come. But as best I can tell, it's the uncertainty and the irregularity that are going to be the most challenging uh, effects of climate change, not to mention kind of, you know, the extremes that we're tending to see. But as a result of that, it feels to me like, you know, the, the, the most frightening aspect of it is the unknowns. It's the droughts that we didn't used to get in the summertime in a place that we tend to think of as being, you know, very, you know, receiving very even precipitation distribution, or it's this, you know, the effects of this kind of long pronounced, you know, almost summer-like fall that we're having. Like we haven't gotten our first frost here yet. And we're probably, you know, three weeks uh, past where it would have been last season. And so I feel like just, you know, adding more diversity to our toolkit is, is really the key to that. Also, I think looking to more human scale management techniques both from kind of a climate change, but also, you know, when this book project first began, there was so much talk about peak oil and economic instability. Like we don't hear much about peak oil anymore, but just thinking about, you know, these supply line disruptions, we are talking about a lot, but thinking about um, how we can create human scale landscapes that we can manage, I think makes it really relevant because we see that these practices have sustained our ancestors, you know, up until, really up until the advent of the sawmill and the ability for us to economically transport coal, um, which was kind of the first big industrial fuel that displaced charcoal. But we're not that far removed from that reality potentially, you know, being something we need to grapple with again. So thinking about how we can use axes and handsaws to do this work instead of needing, you know, skidders and tractors and sawmills, um, you know, the economy of pole wood, is, is the way that I kind of tend to frame coppicing is, is just recognizing that there's this incredible tradition of using small diameter wood for all sorts of things. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, bringing our relationship to trees back to, you know, very much a human scale where we can like cut a pole and carry it on our shoulders back home, as opposed to needing to have, you know, equipment or draft animals or whatever else in order to, to move it across the landscape. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. If you can take care of your local community within the context of that local community, meaning the resources are primarily coming from that local community, that fundamentally removes out the human element of climate change. And by definition is reducing our carbon emissions and so on. It's much more cyclical and systemic, like systemically sound. Mm -hmm. It's not relying on things like infinite growth. So for folks that want to hear more from you, want to check out your book, any of that stuff, is there some place they could go find your work? 
There are a few places. Um, they tend not to be updated regularly, but they exist. Um, there's a website for the book. It's coppiceagroforestry.com. And there's a, a pretty extensive blog that both Dave Jackie and I maintained um, over the course of a number of years with some, some really good entries chronicling some of the travels and, and case studies that we both carried out over the course of, I mean, this, the book's been in the works for 10 years now. And so that'll also be a place where I'll have information about, you know, pre-ordering uh, releases. I think there's a way to sign up for the newsletter there as well, but coppiceagroforestry.com. Is that with coppice with a D or? Uh, no, C-O-P-P-I-C-E agroforestry, okay. A-G-R-O forestry.com, coppiceagroforestry, which is the, the title of the book, Coppice Agroforestry, Tending Trees for Product, Profit, and Woodland Ecology. Uh, the book is slated for release in, uh, the I think, June of, of next year, 2022. Uh, and I'll be offering it for pre-order come the, the new year. And then also, you know, I, I work as a designer, educator, consultant. My business for that is keylinevermont.com. Or it's Keyline Vermont, but the website's keylinevermont.com. And then I've also been a traditional woodworker over time. And if folks are interested in learning a little bit more about that, rivenwoodcrafts.com, R-I-V-E-N, woodcrafts with an S.com. Awesome. Yeah. So those are a few of the ways that, um, that folks can kind of keep up with, with what I've got going on. And do you have any social medias or not? Not really. Yeah. Um, we have a, uh, Instagram page for our farm. Uh, it's Valley clay plain at Valley clay plain. And, uh, unfortunately every name that I have requires spelling for people <laughs> to get it. So it's Valley clay plain, V A L L E Y C L A Y. P-L-A-I-N, Valley Clay Plain. And valleyclayplain.com is the website for our farm as well. And Valley, Valley Clay Plain Forest is the name of the natural community that once blanketed much of the Champlain Valley. And so we've kind of used that natural community as, as an inspiration and a vision for the type of landscape we'd like to create over time as we create this managed agroforestry. And so that's that's what Valley Clay Plain refers to as the Valley Clay Plain Forest. Awesome. Well, Mark, this has been great. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Andy. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Poor Proles Almanac.